0: This passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 24 through 26. So you can turn there. If you're using a Bible from the chairs, you'll find that on page 870. Again, Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we take a pause in our day and in the ongoing list of things to do in our mind to thank you, to bring our gratitude for you for your everlasting and immeasurable love that was most clearly seen at the cross. And we thank you, Father, for rescuing us from our own sin and redeeming us back to yourself. Would you this morning teach us, teach us from your word, explain the meaning of this passage to us in such a way that we long to become students of your word and we long to um, increase our affection for you. Father, would you um, capture our hearts and our minds right now to pay attention to this teaching for your glory? Amen.
1: Good morning, everyone. Well, during my early years here as a youth pastor, there was a young man who attended our high school youth group that I found to be a very, very difficult person Uh, He was very cold and sarcastic and just kind of had a mean spirit about him towards people. Uh, But in spite of this, the the members of our group, I I thought, did a really good job reaching out to him. And the summer of his senior year, to my surprise, he decided to come along with us to a trip that we were taking to a youth conference in Washington, D.C., And to make a long story short, something incredible happened in this man's young man's life. He became a completely different person. I mean, all of a sudden, like halfway through the week, he was cheerful and friendly and engaging. And he became interested for the first time that I was aware of in in spiritual things. And the transformation in his life was uh, remarkable. In fact, uh, I remember this very clearly one afternoon on the steps outside of of one of those great capital buildings uh, with our entire youth group gathered around. Out of nowhere, this young guy just started weeping. And not just weeping, he was sobbing and wailing and and moaning. It, It was ugly crying, as people call it. And he began to pour out his heart to all of us, confessing things that he had been doing wrong, some of which were very serious, uh, expressing his regret for his bad attitude. He, he even got up and began to apologize to other specific boys in the youth group that he had been unkind to. And I mean literally grabbing onto them, holding them, begging them for forgiveness, and, and, and weeping on their shoulders. And he said that he decided that he would had enough of the life that he was living and, and he wanted to change. And so the group gathered around him and we prayed for him and we cried with him and we laughed with him. And it was one of the most moving experiences that I've had in my life. However, when we returned back home, it wasn't long before everything went back to the way that it had been before. Uh, The man's attitude and his demeanor and his lifestyle, all of it just seemed to revert to its former ways. And whatever had happened to this young man did not turn out to be lasting. In fact, when he graduated, unfortunately, the first news I heard of his life was that he was serving some time in prison. So I want to ask this morning, what happened? What, What went wrong? Why was the change that occurred in this person's life only temporary and why is it that all of us on some level can relate? We've all made heartfelt promises to stop doing something or to start doing something or to change something about ourselves that that in the end, after a little bit of time, fell flat. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning has something very, very important to say about this. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, really? A passage about a person who's being harassed by demons has something important to say about this? Yes, absolutely it does. I want you to rest assured that I don't mean to suggest that direct demonic activity was necessarily a part of this young man's experience. I'm not saying that at all. Or that it's the cause of our own broken promises in life. But the principle that Jesus is trying to teach through this passage, I do believe was very much in play in this young man's life and I think can be very much in play in our lives too if we aren't careful. Uh, This passage, to be sure, is odd, and it's unsettling even at first glance, but with some careful thought, I think you're really going to find that this hits quite close to home. Now, I want to begin by first sharing a little bit of background regarding demons, which is what this passage is in part about. Uh, First of all, the Bible confirms for us the reality of their existence, Uh, And in fact, this is something that is more and more acceptable in society today, which is different than it was 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, Interest in things like astrology and the occult and Wiccan religion has played a part in our culture's acceptance of uh, spiritual beings as well as books and, and movies and popular culture. But demons, the Bible teaches, are fallen angels who were created by God, but who chose to rebel against him in a failed plot to overthrow him. Uh, They now follow Satan as their leader and are engaged in a war in the spiritual realm against God and his angels, which we, generally speaking, are, are not only protected from, but we're also somewhat ignorant of. But even though it's not exactly clear how they do it, we are told that demons are able to exert influence in the world as a system, as a whole, and sometimes in the life of individuals. Uh, Usually it seems they play a role in deceiving people and and drawing them away from God. But But in very extreme cases, and we see this especially during Jesus' ministry and time on earth, The Bible does give us examples of times when a demon has come to take control of a person, and this is called demon possession. Now, I know that this stirs up a lot of questions this morning for all of us, but those things are really outside of the scope of this sermon and and what Jesus is trying to teach. We do, however, need to be crystal clear on two points. First of all, the Bible tells us that demons are absolutely no match for the power of God. And the second thing it tells us is that their future destiny, which will be a crushing defeat, is certain. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 tells us that it is, in fact, the cross, and by Jesus' work on the cross, that Jesus has already disarmed them and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. And so in light of this, Christians are told that while we should be alert to their schemes, we are to trust in Christ, we're to put on the full armor of God as described in Ephesians chapter 6, and we are not to be afraid. After all, the Bible says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So let's look again at this specific passage. Read this again with me, starting in... Luke eleven twenty four. when the unclean spirit, that's another word for a demon, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That's a little difficult to tell, and there's some debate as to whether or not Jesus meant this story to be taken literally, or if he's using it more like a parable, as, as an illustration that teaches a point. But either way, it doesn't really matter, because the point behind it is still the same. Here we have an example of a person who is very, very far from God. Their sin has reached such an extreme degree in their life that they now have come under the influence of a demon and are controlled by it and are undoubtedly experiencing the suffering and pain that goes along with that. But then something good happens. The demon is either cast out or it, it leaves the person for some reason and it says that now this evil spirit passes through waterless places in search of rest. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, in this time period, it was thought that the desert, which is the most waterless place of all, was the dwelling place of evil spirits because the land was thought to be cursed with a lack of rainfall. And so apparently this one is searching there for a new home, but for whatever reason isn't able to find one. I guess there's nobody in the desert. So then an idea occurs to it. It says, well, hmm, if I can't find a new place, I might as well go back to my old place. So it makes a U-turn and travels back only to find that the person whom it left has made some major changes in their life. Things look very different. The person's lifestyle is not the mess that it used to be. They've cleaned themselves up, swept out the dirt, and put their life back in order again, so to speak. But this... Evil spirit is not to be deterred. It goes out and gathers seven other spirits who are even more evil than it is, and they all come barging back into the person's life, now together as a group, wrecking even more havoc than before, so that now, in the end, the person is worse off than they were in the beginning. All right, so what does all this mean? What's the point? Let's think this through a little bit. First of all, this passage is not focused on satisfying our curiosity about demons. Okay? Demons are sort of secondary in this. But it is the example of a person's life who is a mess that we're given here. And then wonderfully, the mess gets cleaned up. But instead of living happily ever after, everything falls apart again so that the person's life becomes even messier than before. And we're meant to ask ourselves the question, what is it that went wrong? And why is Jesus telling this? What's the hope that he has that it will teach us something that's helpful? Well, this passage is a warning about how to deal with the messes in our lives too. This is a warning for you and me. This person's condition is obviously a very extreme one. However, we all have our own sin and struggles and disobediences to deal with in our lives too. We're, we're all messy people. And what I think Jesus is trying to show us is what it means to truly change. What repentance from these things looks like and requires. And what he's suggesting is that if the only thing that you do when it comes to repentance from your sin is to deal with something negative, then you're setting yourself up for future failure. Let me put it a different way, and then I'm going to build it out. If your idea of repentance is limited to trying to scrub all the bad stuff out of your life, it will never be enough to promote lasting change. You know, so often when the Lord convicts us that there's something in our life that is amiss in our thoughts or attitudes or or behaviors our greed, our uh, lustfulness, our self, self-absorption with ourselves, whatever it is, so often we tend to think that the path forward is to lift up the rug that that sin, whatever it is, is hiding under and sweep that sin out of our lives. But here we're told that repentance that continues for the long haul always involves and requires more than just getting rid of bad behavior. So why is that not enough? Well, back in the early 1800s, there was a very, very bright man who was a pastor, a Scottish pastor by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And he did a lot of thinking about this. In fact, he wrote a sermon about it that has really resonated with people for generations. And the sermon was called, The Expulsive Power of a new affection. The power to expulse something that a a new uh, affection provides. And and it's a great sermon. The language is difficult in it because it's older, you know, but it's very, very much worth reading. And I want you to listen to something that he says in that sermon. He says, the heart must have something to cling to. The heart must have something to cling to. Human beings, he says, are always looking for something to give their lives meaning and joy. And he says, when we find it, we clasp onto it tightly. And he continues, he says, and never by its own voluntary consent will the heart so denude itself or unfasten itself from all its attachments meaning that once the heart has found something to cling to, even if it's wrong, even if it's a a sinful habit, the heart will never voluntarily let go. The heart of every person as they move through life will always latch onto the object of its deepest affection. It will always be clasping onto something. And, And Chalmers says, the heart abhors a vacuum. It revolts against its own emptiness. So if you take away whatever love the heart is clinging to, the heart will feel empty. And it will find that condition intolerable. And so it will go immediately to searching for something else to cling to. So let's bring things together this morning. When it comes to our repentance, if the only thing that we attempt to do is to detach our heart from its affection towards a certain sin and then to sweep that sin out of our lives, then a vacuum. A, an empty space will be created inside of us and our hearts will revolt against that empty space and seek immediately to clasp onto something else. And if we don't replace that old affection with something better and stronger and more powerful, then we will be susceptible either to returning back to our real, original sin or, or perhaps even latching onto something That's worse. In other words, you can't just deal with the negative. You've got to exchange that negative for a new positive. In order to truly change, your heart must come to possess a new and better affection. And it's only through the power of this new affection that your heart will be protected from clinging back onto the old one. So we have to ask the question then, well, well, what should this new affection be? And I bet you know exactly what I'm going to say, don't you? So I'm not going to say it. I'm going to give you an example of it. One of the most influential Christians who ever lived was, uh, uh, he was called a, a church father. He was a, a great leader and theologian of the church, and his name was Augustine. He was born in the year 354 uh, a d augustine 's mother was a believer in Christ, but in his early years he himself was not and He wrote a a book that was called Confessions which is is just a book of his his life, his autobiography but it 's written as prayers every single sentence is a, is written as a prayer to to god and and in that book, Augustine tells of moving to Carthage uh, to study at a university at the age nineteen where he says that he found himself, quote, in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. And for about the next nine years, he gave himself over completely to that cauldron. Uh, His heart clasped onto sexual pleasure with tremendous affection, and and he basically ran wild. But, But there was something inside of him, probably from his mother's uh, influence in his life that knew that, that this was wrong and he hated himself for it, but he couldn't seem to stop. And, and despite his best efforts, all of his promises, you, you know, to, to, to stop this lifestyle did not produce lasting change. And, and as a result, his life was just a mess for these nine years. And he tells a story that then, finally, one day, he was in a small garden that was attached to the house that he was living in, and he fell down on his knees, racked with guilt, and he cried out to God to truly help him finally change. And and he tells that just right at that time, he heard the song of two children singing behind him, and, and the children were repeating the same phrase over again, take it and read. Take it and read. And so he took this as a sign from God that he should read the Bible. And he he grabbed his Bible, he opened it up to the book of Romans, and he came to understand for the first time the gospel. He finally realized that God loved him and that Jesus had come to die for him and that through faith in Christ, full and complete forgiveness could be granted to him as a gift and that he could become God's own child, that God was willing to accept him in in that incredible way. And he wrote, the light of confidence flooded into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Now, later on, he wrote about this experience looking back, again, as a prayer to God. And I want you to listen really carefully to what he prayed. He said how sweet all at once was was excuse me how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which i had once feared to lose you drove them from me you who are the true and sovereign joy i want you to catch this part he says you drove them from me and took their place you who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who outshine all light. You who surpass all honor. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. And you see what happened to him? What Augustine did is he exchanged an old affection for a new one. He tried for nine years to sweep out the old one, but it wasn't until he made a trade that he found the power to change. And what was it that he traded? Well, he traded this old affection with the Lord himself. Jesus, he says, became sweeter to him than his sin. You know, some of us, I know, are struggling Today, just like Augustine was then. And we are racked with guilt because our hearts have clutched onto something that we know is a fruitless joy. That we know, even though it, it, it harms us, it, it, our heart is desperate for it. Our heart fears to lose it. We we fear that void. We, We fear the vacuum that would be created if we were to let go of it. And we think to ourselves, if only I had the willpower to stop. If only I could sweep this out of my life. But this passage shows us that the battle that you face in that is not just a battle of your will. It's a battle of your deepest affection. And lasting victory will not be found just by sweeping out your, your sin, but in redirecting your deepest affection, in, in discovering, just like Augustine did, that, that God himself and God alone is your light and your wealth and your salvation, that he is sweeter than any pleasure. And God invites you and and he beckons you today, not just to promise to lay down your old affections, but to exchange them for a new one. To latch onto him. To cling in faith to the glories of the gospel and the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of the person of Christ himself. God wants you to let him fill the void. Fill that vacuum. And this morning, in just a few minutes as we celebrate communion, I have to say this is just such a perfect opportunity for all of us to put this into practice, to lay down something old and to pick up something new, to cast away our sin at the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus has given his life so that we can be forgiven, but not just that, to cling to him, to run to the arms of our Father, to make him our greatest joy, and to experience in our hearts the power of a new and greater affection. Let's pray. Father, oh, I pray that you would help us this morning to do this. I pray that you would help us to find our deepest affection in you. Help us to know that you are worthy of every affection that we have, and so much more. Thank you for this passage, which is so helpful and important. And thank you for the opportunity to practice this through communion this morning. May you deal in our hearts this morning. May you convict us this morning. And may you lead us to your throne of grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.